Hello and welcome to episode six of the It's Nice That podcast. This is the show where we talk to leading designers, illustrators, creative directors and photographers about the delights and dramas of being a creative. We want to scrub away the Instagram gloss and hear the honest truth from people who've built careers out of their creativity. How do they come up with their best ideas? What's the secret to staying inspired? And what happens when creative projects go awry? My name's Matt Alagaya. I'm the editor-in-chief of It's Nice That. And today, I'm going to be sitting down with Caterina Bianchini, the founder and creative director of Studio Nari. We'll hear why she decided to set up the studio and get an insight into how she thinks about typography, collaboration, and the limits of having a house style. After that, we'll be heading to Baltimore to hear from a photographer and visual artist who's fallen in love with one of the city's public libraries. That's all coming up on the It's Nice That podcast. First, though, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined for this episode of the podcast by my colleague Jenny Brewer, our online editor. Hey, Jenny. Hiya. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. So, Jenny, we should probably talk about the the feature that was written by Jem Fletcher, just to kind of tell our listeners that it's out there and that they can find it. What was that feature about? Yeah, it's an amazing piece, really important piece, actually, for everyone in the creative industry to kind of reflect on the kind of premise is why making good work is no longer enough, which is quite provocative. It's sort of about the idea of centering care as a creative principle and the world has changed and yet people are sort of desperate to go back to normality but it's about you know we've got this chance to break out of systemic loops of kind of hierarchy and all of the things that were kind of broken I guess about our industry and I guess the world so she talks to some people that are kind of building genuinely sort of change-making programs and projects that sort of support communities and the environment and mental health, you know, they're not what a lot of people are guilty of, a lot of companies and brands and studios, which is like quick fix solutions or, you know, off the back of it being a trend or something or it being a PR stunt, but instead these are actually meaningful long-term grassroots projects that are going towards a goal and, and not necessarily just for the sake of doing something but actually to make a change and it be enduring and leave a legacy they're really interesting projects and people that she speaks to and hopefully it'll inspire lots of other people to kind of do the same yeah absolutely it's kind of redefining what we mean by by good work so that was a feature written by by jem fletcher and went up on the site last week so do check it out if you if you have a chance we also want to mention a certain anniversary don't we jenny (laughs) (laughs) yes it's quite wild to say that it's the 200th anniversary of the weekly comic on its nice that's instagram which is amazing and so we've got a feature kind of bringing together some of the highlights of those and a new one but yes very exciting and can't quite believe it but they're always brilliant so good to kind of celebrate it mark that occasion absolutely 200 weeks of the weekly comic amazing now for this episode of the podcast jenny i'm speaking with uh, katarina bianchini the founder of studio nari you've had a listen to this interview already what, what should our listeners be keeping a particular ear out for i think it was just a sort of interesting and kind of i would say is probably a comforting point that she talks about near the beginning which is about the realities of starting her own studio and kind of how at the beginning she was working full time and doing you know projects in her free time giving up weekends or whatever which I'm sure a lot of people have to do if they want to make their own thing happen it will be a, a good story to hear for people that aren't kind of maybe in the midst of that and 
not really sure if they're doing the right thing, if they're going in the right direction, because she's sort of got that hindsight now. And she talks about how it didn't seem linear at the time. And now she's like grateful for all these, like, I think she calls them like tiny steps that she was making inroads. Like there's also quite a nice message about making sure that you do work that you're truly kind of passionate about in those stages, because she does sort of a lot of music posters and kind of makes contacts in the music industry just because she loves that type of work and wants to work in that sector. And now at the stage she's at now where she's like hugely successful and she's got these contacts that she's had for all this time. And now she's doing bigger projects for big record labels like Universal and Atlantic. I thought it was really lovely to hear that Firstly, that she's done all of that work and it's paying dividends now, but she wasn't really sure what she was doing at the time. But also that she has got the chance to now do more in the world that she loves. I think it's definitely going to be very reassuring for someone who's trying to set up their own practice, whether that's in design or illustration or photography or whatever, and is working very hard, but maybe not seeing the dividends yet. I think it's probably not necessarily an interview for someone who thinks that it might be an easy ride though, right? It sounds difficult no matter what. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I mean, it's not like, um, I don't want to encourage people to not have a life, a work-life balance. You know, I'm sure that it's the reality for a lot of people that want to carve their own niche But, you know, she was spending it doing something that she liked, at least, which is a privilege in itself, I suppose. But but yeah, very real, very interesting story that a lot will relate to, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. She's very honest about the process. I guess there's another really interesting point that you wanted to touch on, which is about kind of Instagram and not over curating your feed too much. Something that she kind of reflects on quite nicely in this interview. Yeah, that is really refreshing. I think there's a lot of people that are taking a new approach to Instagram and not being a slave to it as such. She even says, I think, like, we're not working for Instagram anymore sort of thing in the way that they are choosing what to put up, not based on it being kind of completely finished and polished work, but showing process, showing experiments and ideas, but also not showing the likes, so hiding the likes. So not being kind of, I guess, sort of controlled by, she talks about validation and how it's a completely unreliable form of validation because, you know, who's to say that those people liking or not liking, that they can decide whether it's good work or not. You know, you put out what you're proud of and you share it because, you know, it's important to share and have a portfolio and it's a big part of getting work. But I think that kind of obsession with, oh, it's only got that many likes, can get a bit poisonous, can't it? So I thought that was really, really refreshing. And I instantly went and hid my likes on mine. <laughs> so I thought, oh, yeah, it's just it's like, just amazing to think that I've been like looking at that and caring. Who cares? It's very true. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it feels like it's almost a recurring theme of this series is that people are kind of questioning the the value of Instagram. Obviously, lots of people have benefited from it, but I think there's there's a lot more critical eyes on that social media platform at the moment. Well, thanks very much, Jenny, for your time and, and for those insights. I hope that's uh, helpful to our listeners. Without further ado, let's hear that chat now with Katerina Bianchini. Hey, Katerina, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the It's Nice That podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, it's great to have you. I should say that your your puppy is in the room. Can you tell us about your puppy? <laughs> yeah, okay. I feel like all I've been doing is like a new mum, but I, all I do is talk about my <laughs> new dog. <laughs> but yeah, we have a wee whippet called Albert in Studio Nari. He's the newest member of the studio. If we do hear any little whines or barks, that's where it's coming from. It's not somebody else in the studio doing strange things in the background that doing don't make sense. Very odd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is usually pretty well behave though so I'm hoping that he's going to be a star boy for me while I'm recording this podcast. <laughs> Wonderful well yeah if we do hear anything it's probably Albert the, the whippet in the background yeah lovely to know that he's there. So Katharina for our conversation today we're going to be looking at how you've grown Studio Nari into what it is today a powerhouse in the design world that's collaborating with some incredible creatives and winning work for some of the biggest brands on the planet. I'm also interested in hearing how you've differentiated the studio over the years and kind of carved out a space in what is, yeah, as we all know, a, an extremely saturated market. And I'd also love to look at some of the work as well, you know, some of the projects that have come to define the studio. But first, I guess it would be good if you could start by talking us through how the studio actually came about. Like, why did you decide in the first place to strike out on your own? It all was pretty natural in terms of the transition. So I began working in studios and agencies when I was working in these institutions. I felt like I wasn't really getting what I wanted out of the work that we were creating. A lot of the work that we were sort of producing didn't feel like it was that connected to the strategy as much of the strategy that I wanted it to to sort of feel like it was connecting to that. And I suppose it always felt like there was more that we could do that we weren't doing. A big part of this led me to start doing a lot of freelance design work in my spare time. So that would usually happen in the evenings or at the weekend. So I remember for a solid two years of my life, I would end the working day at say like 6pm, sometimes later, I would go straight home, I would fire up my desktop MacBook that I had at the time and eat my dinner in front of my computer and just start working again. And that was always on just sort of wee freelance projects. So that could be for like a boutique, you know, fashion house or a smaller sort of jewellery company or just some lovely bespoke packaging. But it really allowed me to be super creative, use my own, I suppose, process, think Thinking about things from a creative strategy point of view but it was really this lovely outlet I suppose of my creativity and gave me that freedom of thought to that freedom of expression in the way that I sort of approached these projects. From that I started to work a lot more in the music sector so I was doing a lot of music posters. This was more just something that I was really interested in. It was something that I did a lot in my spare time was go to events, music events. So being able to work on those posters was amazing. You know, I loved it. And that actually was the moment where I think I really developed my typographic style and that sensibility of design and the approach in terms of balance that came with design. So I always talk about this a lot now in the studio is the balance needs to feel right. And I think that having that moment of time of working with the posters really allowed me to nourish and explore what that really meant in a design sense. After that, I kind of established what was the very narcissistically named <laughs> Katrina Bianchini studio. <laughs> and that was really where I decided to go fully freelance. So I left my day job. I set up a small studio in Hackney Downs. I had some interns working with me there. And that was kind of where we were getting a wee bit more momentum. The projects were feeling a little bit more, I suppose, 360 in terms of the approach. You know, there was a lot more like work that had to go into it than me being able to just do it in my evenings and my weekends. And I needed a bit more support. 
So from there, again, I suppose it was kind of quite a natural progression, quite a natural movement in terms of the bigger the size that we got, the bigger the projects we could take on. And that then led us to establishing NARI. At the time, there was no projection. I didn't think this is where I want to go at all. It was really just almost like the projects ran with that. We almost like ran next to them. You know, it was almost like as the projects were taking off, we were kind of moving with that work and moving with the way in which we approached that. And I think now having founded Nari, it's really amazing because I feel like the past two years have really been this first sort of feeling of this being a, a really established we have a really solid process we have amazing collaborators we have an incredible team we have amazing clients and it's just feeling like everything is kind of solidified and got to this point now where it's like right I really understand what all of that was for why it was worth it and you don't realize at the time that those tiny steps are so necessary I mean, something that you've touched on already is how close a connection you have to the music world. And, you know, you've worked with Charlie XCX, Peggy Goo, Tyler, the creator, to name just, you know, three there. Those are some seriously aspirational (laughs) collaborators. How did you manage to nurture that connection, the kind of music connection? Because I'm sure lots of designers would love to work with clients in the music world like that. So I think a lot of that actually came from those little posters, you know, that I was designing in my spare time and having loads of fun with. I produced a limited edition book after that year. We only printed 300 copies. It was called See You at the Dance. And I think that that kind of almost cemented that time of my life and almost archived it. And then from that, I think there was just this sort of snowball effect of Kat's work, perhaps for some of these really big DJs through clubs, but she's still got that sort of connection. She really understands how to design for music. I then, you know, started working with people like Secret Sundays, who then introduced me to record labels or having worked previously at Boiler Room, also kind of gaining a wee bit of that sort of connection or being introduced to certain types of people. I would say that that's probably how it happened. To be honest, there was no like formal introductions of here's Kat, you know, we've worked with her doing this or anything. I think it was almost just the snowball effect of producing that work, putting it on Instagram. Instagram is universal, obviously. And I think especially when you're working with music clients, they don't necessarily want a really corporate commercial person or studio. They want people who are thinking more artistically, can interpret things in a different way. I think it almost just through using Instagram really staying true to that sort of music design and enjoying that part of my career, I think brought a lot of those clients to me at the beginning, you know, and now to us as Nari. Again, it's just, you know, you work small and then it kind of grows. Things link, you know, so now we're working with some of the biggest record labels, I would say, in the world, like Atlantic, Universal, part of Atlantic. So it's just, it's amazing, really. I feel very fortunate. You know, I look back and I think, oh my goodness, so many of my weekends were taken away from me, you know, when I was like a lot younger, when people were out partying or seeing their friends or when I first like, you know, moved to London, really exploring London. And I put all of that initial energy into what now is Nari and what was Catherine Bianchi Studio and what were those posters. And I suppose I feel like Maybe at the time it didn't make sense, but now I'm really pleased that I did do that. I'm almost, I'm so pleased I did it then than having to do it now. 
because I don't know if I've got the energy to do that now. That's really interesting. Something's got to give. You can't have it all, I guess. <laughs> Another thing, Catherine, that you touched on was was kind of typography. And it's a really defined and bold approach to typography. It's kind of such a core part of, of what you do. You've collaborated with and helped grow the careers of a number of young type designers. Where does typography fit into your branding work? I mean, is it the first thing you start with? Where does it kind of sit in a project? Yeah, so I would say typography is something that we really like to focus on in the work that we do and the clients that we work with. I like to think that this is something almost of a bespoke service that Nari can offer that other studios or design studios don't necessarily have the ability to do. So for me, it's incredibly important that if we're working on a brand identity, that that brand identity needs to feel completely unique and bespoke to that client. And I don't see any other way of us possibly doing that than if we hand draw the typography, if we create that type from scratch. So that was really like the place where that idea in terms of how we pulled in bespoke typography into every project that we did came from was this need to service the client in a way that felt truly bespoke. I would say now it's a real important way of us as a studio showcasing our personality on say smaller scale projects like things like merchandise or if we do do sort of more cultural or contemporary culture identity work where it's not necessarily as commercial I think it's so important because I think it's almost like the face of a brand the the logo type I think having this really bold unique essence to the typography or that logo type that people can instantly see say the first character of it and say, oh, I know exactly what that is, is super important. I would say that now we're kind of moving into a realm of typography in the way that we approach typography in the studio, that we're trying to think of it as almost more of a platform. So just kind of trying to bring in a neutral element to the way in which we approach type for, say, things like logo types. But then we'll have these moments in the brand worlds or the project where we have this crazy, you know, explosive sort of expression of typography that we try and build into the, the sort of wider brand world. Whereas I would say previously, we were almost trying to make all of our logo types really, really expressive. And I think just again, as the studio grows and the clients that we're working with are getting bigger and bigger, we're trying to almost think of the balance between the commercial element of typography and then our unique sort of expressive element of typography that we've kind of become known for, I suppose, at Nari, and how we can almost balance those two in parallel or, you know, connect them in some way. You've kind of touched on it a couple of times, but I guess collaboration is a huge part of your approach. You seem to bring in the kind of absolutely perfect collaborators for any given project. That's what it seems like on the outside anyway. What have you done to build that network and maintain it? And and how do you approach collaboration? So a big part of our process at Nari is actually offering clients bespoke team builds. So I think what's like interesting is where we're at currently is we have built a core team. So we are now going to be 10 people, which is just amazing. It's crazy to actually think about that and how quickly it's happened. And that core team is built of incredible designers. We've got typographers, we've got people who are more, you know, motion 3D, we've got like incredible art directors. And actually, it's almost like we've cherry picked some of our favorite collaborators and made them into our core narrow team. But then what we still offer all of our clients when we're working on any project is the ability to build bespoke teams where we might use, say, two of our core team, and then we'll get an amazing typographer or a CGI artist or a videographer. But what that does is it allows us to have multiple perspectives from all over the world whenever we're working on any project or interpreting any brief. 
it also allows us to have friends all over the world, you know, and people who can become a part of what we call our extended family, which is just amazing, you know, to have the ability to connect and kind of have that sort of universal approach to each of the projects that we're doing and I would just say that that's probably like the most important things with collaboration is the ability to bring in a new completely different perspective you know you never know where other people are getting their references from so I think that that's super interesting no two brains are the same so why would you not like you know collaborate with amazing people and I'd say like secondly it allows us to feel like we're also almost supporting or promoting some of these younger people that are coming into, you know, the creative industry, especially some of like there's amazing typographers that are still even studying, you know, and it's it just allows them to have that platform or that experience that I wish I had had when I was sort of trying to make my way or even just as an experience to say, you know, I really enjoyed that or that was way too intense. Like I don't want to do it. So I think that that's why it's so important with us. You mentioned the, the different perspectives that bringing in different collaborators can bring. Is that also a way to kind of avoid different projects looking too similar? I mean, we sometimes see it with design studios that almost have a bit of a house style, or at least it starts to evolve, which means you can kind of spot a project by that studio. And sometimes that's not a good thing. How much are collaborations about ensuring kind of, yeah, different approaches and then different outcomes as well? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I hate that. You know, I really do. It's like, it's like those over curated Instagrams. I just think Instagram should be a place that is not overly thought about. Like we often post on Instagram, a lot of our sketches or unfinished work. And obviously it all still looks like lovely. You want to interact with it in some way, but it's not necessarily the final product that's gone to the client. So I feel exactly the same way about portfolio. Every client is different. And obviously there is a thread, I think, within each of our projects where people, you know, say, oh, I knew that Nari worked on that. I knew it was you guys just because of like the textural feel or the colours or the typography, say. But I think that it's so important that every brand has its own personality. So therefore, that should be represented in the approach of the design the way in which that design is output, how it connects, you know, the photography. I just think it's so important for everything to feel super unique. And also I think for us as a studio, it allows us to not get bored or lazy. Or sometimes I call, you know, these people who've been in, like I'm talking big, big agencies for like 40 years. I sometimes call them dinosaurs because there's no new insight. There's no new way of doing anything. And it's just always the same process. And I, I also like to think that as is Nari, we have a process that's working right now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to continue to do things exactly the same way. I feel like anytime we collaborate with someone new, whether that's even a strategist, a writer, a sound designer, say, we learn something. We see their insight. We sort of understand the way that they think about design or how they approach design. And that for me is super interesting. You should always be pushing yourself or, you know, if you truly love design, wanting to learn more about it, wanting to understand why somebody's done something in a certain way or how they've approached that project and why they've approached it like that. You mentioned Instagram there. One of the themes that's really come through every interview for this podcast is the challenges of maintaining a certain kind of personal brand or personality online and particularly on social media. I mean, Studio Nari has a relatively big following. Is that something that you find difficult or does that side of things come relatively easy to you, kind of the brand building side of things? It's interesting that you ask that, actually, because I feel like recently we've had a really big shift 
in not actually caring that much (laughs) in the sense of I just feel Instagram almost controlled so much output for a very long time where people would only share things if it would get a certain amount of likes and almost they would use likes as validation to whether it was a good piece of design or a bad piece of design and it's so not appropriate you know because who is judging this what is that pool of people some of them might not even be in design you know it's just such an unreliable and untruthful way of showcasing or validating work so we now always hide our likes because for me it's a wee bit of a you know bye bye Instagram like you know I don't want to swear but you to Instagram because it's like I don't need to you know almost like validate this work through the amount of likes it gets or then feel embarrassed if it doesn't get a certain amount of likes and I'm sure everyone if they're being totally truthful does think about that on some level I feel like there's just like so much of a sense of freedom now with social media I feel like people are really sort of moving away from this super preened beautiful output you know we're in the generation of tiktok it's my hair on top of my head me doing a dance with no makeup on my kitchen in the background looking a total state that's kind of i think the 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 sort of world we've come to in instagram as well or it's more like do you know what if i don't want to post for four weeks i'm I'm not going to do it and it doesn't affect the company in any way or my profile in any way because all i'm going to do is hide my likes and there that's it you know you're not going to almost have control in that sense and i think like that feels really good and i think instagram is super important as i say especially when you're starting out because i mean that's where i find most of the collaborators for the studio is instagram so it's really really important in that sense But I don't think it necessarily needs to be that you're working for Instagram anymore, you know, or that you're doing certain things for Instagram. It's more that, hey, this is what we did this month. Take a look at it. Check back in next month. See you later. Or like if it's sort of news, you know, anytime like somebody new starting, we're putting it out on Instagram just so that people can see, you know, like how amazing our team is and who we're working with, et cetera, or, or, you know, uplifting those collaborators in some way. But yeah, I think it feels very much like a, secondary at this stage for us as a studio that's so interesting to hear about the evolution of your kind of thinking about that platform maybe we are going to say say goodbye to the highly curated design feed interesting watch that space i hope so (laughs) i'd love to end with just a couple of questions about kind of advice for other people young designers starting out or looking to launch their own studios I don't know if you're willing to speak about this even in vague terms, but has there ever been a project that's gone wrong almost that you wouldn't mind talking about? You know, I'm interested to know what kinds of things go wrong for a studio like yours and how you tackle or solve those issues. Yeah, so I think not necessarily anything's ever gone wrong, but I think definitely there are times where client and studio don't align. And I think that that's something that we actually even write into our contracts as a studio is that it's subjective you know like what we are doing is super conceptual sometimes obviously we always translate those concepts into something that we feel represents that on a way that can be understood by a larger audience commercial audience say but there are definitely moments where that can't quite be overcome or it can't quite be resolved so for instance we did work on a project recently where we felt like we were interpreting the concept in a really simple like literal way but the client did not necessarily feel like that so that was something where we then handed over where we had got to to the internal 
design team of that client. I cannot say the client's name. You know, still what was used from that was our concept, our thinking. It was just that necessarily the way in which we were interpreting it, they obviously had a very, very clear idea in their head. And without just telling us to do that idea, you know, which we wouldn't accept anyway as a studio, we would say at this point, it is time to hand it over to you. But I would say that's probably the only time where we've kind of encountered that. And it's not necessarily an issue. It's more of a maybe we've kind of come as far down this path as we need to come, you know, and and now it's time to sort of hand over. And I think also it's a good thing to be able to know when to do that. You know, I think when we were a younger studio, things like that would be really scary or you would feel like you'd completely failed. Whereas now I think it's something that you have to just think, okay, let's think about this a little bit more literally. Does this make sense for us now as a studio in terms of do we want to be working on this and how far it's been pushed into a certain direction? And if it's not necessarily working for the client, then, you know, maybe this collaboration has come to like a sort of natural endpoint. And I think that now we feel very fortunate in the fact that we can kind of almost say, yeah, okay, we're happy to sort of agree on that. Because it's both sides. When it gets to that point of a client shaping something so much to a degree that you no longer understand what you're doing from a design perspective, and you feel like it doesn't connect to the original sort of concept it's not working anymore, you know, and I think it's almost actually just a very mature way of approaching projects and a working relationship as well with that client. We've gone on and worked with that client loads of times again. So it ends up working to your benefit, you know, I think, because it's just an honest way of approaching something. Very interesting. Finally, what advice would you give to any young designers out there looking to launch their own studios and build a studio like you've done with Studio Nari, as we've seen throughout this interview? Any other advice that you'd give to them? Well, number one is don't be afraid of hard work, (laughs) because I think nothing comes easy. I don't want to be a pessimist, but you have to work for, for what you want. You do. You absolutely do. I think also being a female in the design space is particularly when I started out, it's changed a lot now. But I would say you do have to work for what you want. You know, if you want to get something out of a certain collaboration or a certain experience, you need to make sure that you know what that thing is and have the ability to and the energy, I suppose, to go and, and get that. I would say another thing is to have fun. I think a big part of why we do so well, why we're winning these projects that we're winning at the moment against huge like companies like we're talking like of 50 people against us of 10 is because we have a real energy enthusiasm and excitement about what we're working on why we're working on it we really understand the client and we're always trying to push what we create so we're having so much fun we're thinking differently we're just pushing ourselves and I think that that's a super exciting way to approach work i think that's it probably yeah i think it's have fun and don't be afraid to go for what you want to go for katarina we're gonna have to leave it there but it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation thanks so much for joining us on the it's nice that podcast no worries thank you so much for having me That was Katerina Bianchini from Studio Nari. If you want to hear a longer version of that interview, well, you can by joining Extra Nice. It's Nice That's membership program. You'll get your hands on a host of benefits and goodies, including a bit more time and a few extra insights from Katerina. Please do go and check it out. Right, that's nearly all we've got time for, but before we head off, we've got one final treat in store. Every episode of the podcast, we hear from a creative somewhere in the world as they tell us about a place in their city that keeps them inspired. 
For this sixth episode, we're hopping over the pond to Baltimore to hear from photographer and visual artist Shan Wallace, who's taking us to the Enoch Pratt Library. So keep your voice down. Here's Shan. I'm Shan Wallace. I am from Baltimore. I'm a photographer and visual artist, filmmaker, archivist, educator. I wear a lot of hats. And I really want to talk to you about what inspires me. Lately, I've been visiting the Enoch Pratt Library, which is Baltimore's public library. And this place has been the most inspiring for me over the last couple of months for many reasons. One, it's a library, so it has tons of resources, lecture series, different types of programming for the public, different books, periodicals where you can go and read old newspapers, old magazines, as well as more contemporary uh, stories and newspapers. There's just so much at your hands when you're in the library, and that's just the resources that are available. Another reason why I'm really, really inspired at the library is the librarians and all of the people who kind of keep this system going. You have the librarians who know so much about their departments, but also they know so much outside of their departments because a lot of them are archivists, a lot of them are artists, a lot of them are musicians, a lot of them are collectors, some of them are chefs. And so it's been really amazing to visit the library and just listen to the different career paths and the different interests and hobbies that the librarians kind of split their time with when they are not in the library. And sometimes when they are in the library, week after week, I come to the library just to read, just to discover, just to really search with really no intention sometimes. Sometimes I just come inside the library just to observe and just to see the different ways that people are getting their needs met, the different ways that the Enoch Pratt Library is providing services, and also just to talk to the different librarians about some of the creative and artistic things that are on their minds. The library has been keeping me really busy. It's been keeping me really inspired and it's been really supporting me. So I want to encourage everyone, if there is a public library in your town, your city, or your state, please visit the library because the library is a home of many resources, but also a home of so much knowledge outside of the books and the materials that they carry. That was Shan Wallace telling us about the Enoch Pratt Library and also giving us a peon to the vital role public libraries play in our societies. Many thanks to Shan for that. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Katerina Bianchini and to my colleague Jenny Brewer for joining me earlier. I'm sure you've listened to podcasts before, so this won't come as any sort of surprise. But if you have enjoyed listening to this, it would make us very happy indeed if you could write a review on your favourite podcast app. And even better, if you could also subscribe to the show. The It's Nice That podcast is produced by Palm Tree Island. Our theme music was written and performed by Sounds Like These. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Thank you.